This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splant. Thanks for listening. Today's topic, female pelvic prolapse. What is it and how can we treat it? We speak with Dr. Robin Mainwaring. Dr. Mainwaring received her medical degree from Texas Tech University School of Medicine in 1989, followed by her residency at the University of Utah in 1993. She is board certified in obstetric and gynecology and has exclusively focused on gynecologic care since 2002. Dr. Mainwaring is currently working in Salt Lake City, Utah with Granger Medical Group. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Madison. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about pelvic organ prolapse. So just to give our listeners an idea of what that is, I'm going to briefly describe the few different types of prolapse. So we have a bladder prolapse, which is also called a cystocele, and this is where the bladder is falling anteriorly into the vaginal vault or the vaginal wall. We have a uterine prolapse where the uterus is falling anteriorly from the end of the vaginal vault. And then we have a rectocele or enterocele, which is the rectum or the intestines falling or bulging into the posterior wall of the vagina. So today's topic, we are going to be primarily focusing on the bladder and uterine prolapses with the signs and symptoms. However, in the future, I will be having a podcast emphasizing enterocele and rectocele as well. So for cystocele and a uterine prolapse, there are a few different treatment options that include, you know, from conservative to surgical with physical therapy, pessary use, um, and then we're going to speak today about, you know, the different options, what descriptions that patients are feeling, and what options are best suited for certain diagnoses and patient presentations. So um, to start off, Dr. Mainwaring, what symptoms are females complaining to you when they walk into your office that makes you think, hmm, this is kind of sounding like a bladder or uterine prolapse? I think the most common thing that I hear is there's a bulge coming out. Um, And patients oftentimes are nervous or anxious that this may be a tumor or a mass. And I think the first thing to understand is very rarely is it that it is almost always some component of the prolapse that you were discussing. So it's, you know, most often a cystocele or with uterine prolapse, the cervix starts to come down. And so they are sensing a bulge. They may note it uh, worsening throughout the day. Um, That's a very common thing. Oh, sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. So bulge. Definitely. Some other symptoms of ladies that I see um, are pain with intercourse, like cramping or pain afterwards. That I generally see is associated more with the uterine prolapse, just because that penile penetration is kind of knocking on that uterus, and so they'll get some cramping sensation if they have a prolapse there. Also, you know, incomplete bladder emptying. If it is a bladder prolapse, they'll com- complain of that. You know, I have to double void or I, I urinate, I stand up and then there's more there. What, what's happening? I thought there was nothing left. Um, and then you know, actually being able to see the bulge. Yep. And oftentimes they'll say, when I'm showering, I feel something. You know, I think another thing that's important to bring up, um, sometimes there's subtle things that 
for example, after surgery or pessary or pro or um, physical therapy, patients will say, oh, I've had this low back pain forever and now it's gone. Um, incomplete emptying definitely is one. And stress urinary incontinence, so a leakage with a laugh, cough, sneeze can happen. Most of the time, though, I think it's important that patients realize most prolapse doesn't hurt. It's just there. You know, so it may be a specific activity that will aggravate it, but it's not usually a painful event. Yeah, like, and it seems to be very irritating to patients. Again, yeah, there's no pain associated, but it's more of just an irritation. Like those runners, by the end, they feel Uh like their insides are falling out and Uh they just are irritated by that and don't want that happening anymore. Uh And I think, you know, another thing when it's gone on for years that, uh, women will come in and say is, you know, I've just slowly decreased my exercise because something is always there and there's pressure and it's uncomfortable. So they stop running or, um, you know, stop doing more of their weight bearing activity because the bulge is there and bothersome. Definitely. So in your experience, what do you feel like are the different causes of the pelvic prolapses? They're actually multiple. Um, One of the most common things you will see this run in families because Part of the problem with prolapse um, is the type of connective tissue that we inherit. So again, family history is a very common thing. Childbirth, particularly if there's forceps deliveries, um, you know, occurring can be a part of it. Um, women who have chronic coughs, so whether they have asthma or they're smoking, that internal pressure, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the internal pressure just is putting more pressure on the pelvic organs and pushing them out. Um, obesity can actually be a piece of pelvic organ prolapse. So weight loss, as we start to talk about some treatments, is also a piece. Um, Those are probably the most common things that I see. Curious, do you often see individuals with like connective tissue disorders in your office, like Elhurst-Donlow syndrome? I do see some, and I've had a handful of patients where they do have prolapse, but the vast majority of patients know it's not necessarily, you know, um, a connective tissue disorder. Awesome. And then one other question, I was curious if you see this commonly. After a hysterectomy, you know, years down the road, mm-hmm. do you see them coming back in now for cystocele because they've lost some of that connective tissue fascial support from the uterus that's now removed? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, yes, we do see prolapse, and oftentimes it's not just the cystocele. It's more often the apex of the vagina where the uterus has been removed that comes down. And, you know, there's a lot of theories within our medical community on why does this happen. Um, There's been a big push to look at, do we need to do a better job when we're taking care of these issues surgically with making sure that uh, there's better support for the apex of the vagina so these things don't recur. So I don't know that it's so much a failure of the tissue because of surgery as it is intrinsically their tissue isn't good. And then, you know, they didn't get the adequate support to start with um, for the surgery. And then of course I'm biased being that I am a physical therapist. So, you know, (laughs) we get a hysterectomy and that's caught that, you know, that's solving part of the problem. But if we don't then strengthen the pelvic floor after the fact, yeah, we can, we can start seeing these other prolapses becoming more evident down the road, of course. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, some of that is what we're doing in surgery. So there really has been a movement to do more of the apical support at the time you're doing prolapse repairs um, and or surgeries, hysterectomy. 
Awesome. So I think this is a great time to maybe describe to the listeners the different surgical indications. What does a patient present like that's going to be a best fit for surgery? You know, I really think that that's an individual thing. Um, when patients come to see me for prolapse or um, I find it on exam, um, you know, I'll explain to them it's life irritating, not life threatening. So lots of women will just say, eh, I'm just going to live with it. But if the bulge is increasingly more bothersome, then, you know, we talk about options such as um, pessary use, um, physical therapy, or surgery. What works for each woman is really individualized. You know, there's some women who are not good surgical candidates or, um, you know, are not able to do surgery at that time. Their life is too busy. They just aren't ready for that. Um, and I think pessary works beautifully in that scenario. From a standpoint of physical therapy, I tend to find the group of women, in my experience, that do the best with it that I refer um, are going to be ones with not as great a defect. So, you know, if they've got a prolapse where their cervix is hanging out to the opening of the vagina, they're not probably going to get a lot of success with physical therapy. And there have actually been some really good studies looking at the combination of physical therapy and pessary really being quite helpful. Um, so a lot of times I'll encourage patients, I want you to look at both these things. Awesome. How about describe to our patients, like, what is a pessary? I'm sure a lot of listeners right now are like, that's me. That's me. I don't want surgery. What's a pessary? <laughs> so pessaries are made of silicone. There are actually many, many different types. There are like 20 different types. And interestingly, these things have been around for centuries. Kid you not. Uh, used to be made of wood, if you can imagine, but now silicone. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So um, the one that I use most commonly is called a ring pessary with support. And it looks kind of like a, a disc with a firmer ridge of silicone around it. Um, there are some pessaries that don't have the diaphragm support. And for those listeners that are familiar with diaphragms, I think they look a little bit like a diaphragm. Um, there are also other types, for example, with uterine prolapse that are um, a, a much larger disc type with a little silicone ball at the end of it that'll hold the pessary up, or excuse me, hold the prolapse up. Um, but I think the most common one is a ring pessary. And I like it because I think it's easy for patients to get in and out on their own. And so that's the one I most often utilize. That's great. Yeah, I have a lot of patients coming in here asking about pessaries and what the benefits are. And I, I do commonly refer to that research article that has the amazing effects of pessary in combination with physical therapy. However, I completely agree with you. I think once, you know, they're pushing beyond, you know, a large grade two, grade three prolapse that mm -hmm. we're going to be making minimal gains at that point. And yep surgery is most definitely indicated. And I liked how you touched on how long uh, they've been in use, these pessaries. Mm -hmm. um, I was just at the combined sections meeting for physical therapy over in Washington, D.C. in January, and they were talking about pessaries. And back in Egyptian time, they have documentation of use of a pomegranate Whoa. I know. I thought, I just thought that this was a funny time to interject that because interestingly putting fruit now are, you know, yes, of, you know, yeast and this and that, but just kind of interesting to see that even then that they were noticing that and trying to help reduce that sensation. But please listeners don't put, you know, grapefruits or 
any any fruit substance. And Madison, that brings up a good point because people get concerned, well, is this going to increase my risk for having a vaginal infection or a bladder infection? Because these are medical grade silicone, it does not cause that. It may create a little bit more discharge just because the device is in there, but um, it does not increase your risk for infection. And if it's fit properly, you won't even sense that it's in there. It's like when you put a tampon in when you're menstruating, you don't really feel it in there. You don't feel the pessary if it's fit appropriately. How do you fit or choose the right pessary for a patient? So I actually have a pessary fitting kit that comes in all different sizes. And, you know, different sizes are needed because once we've had kids, you know, the, the vaginal tissue stretches. So some women need a smaller pessary, particularly if they've already had surgery. Um, some women need a larger one. And so when I bring someone in to do a fitting, I'll do a pelvic exam, get an idea in my mind of what might be the right size, and then I try a few different pessaries. Um, when women see them, and again, they look kind of like a disc, I, as I explained, um, people get the impression that it's going to go inside um, vertical to the opening of the vagina, that it may hold up you know, as a seal, and pessaries actually sit horizontal to the vagina. So, you know, it, it people get worried, oh my gosh, you know, it's just going to be this big plug up there. And it really isn't. It's, it's, it's going horizontal to the vagina so that it's giving support when you're bearing down to hold things up. So. Very nice. Thank you for that. So I know I've been seeing this a ton on the television recently, which is the Pois Impreza. And just so all the listeners out there know I have no financial gains with Poison Presa. Um, however, it, I get a lot of women coming in here asking me about that. So what, what's your imp impression on these Poison Presa's, um, you know, self-pessary? I was actually really intrigued when that product came out. And I, for patients, when they come in to see me for prolapse, I'll oftentimes mention it, not so much to use chronically because I think it's expensive and a pessary is covered by insurance and is an inexpensive option, but if they're reticent to try a pessary, um, trying the Impreza I think is really helpful. Um, the fitting kit for it um, that you buy at the store comes with a variety of different sizes and it looks somewhat like a tampon. Um, they place it uh, inside their vagina and then it opens up to give support. So I think it's a good stepping stone to try and see, would this be a right fit for me? Is this comfortable? And if they like it, then I usually say, come back and let me fit you for a pessary. It's a better long-term option. So I like it for the short run more than anything. It's expensive. Yeah. And I also get concerned because it is a cotton substance. It's non-absorbent, unlike a tampon. So I get concerned about patients that may cause more dryness or irritation with insertion and removal. Uh, what's your opinion on that? I think that that's a valid point. And, you know, it, it, it isn't just um, cotton. It actually has kind of like a cylindrical shape within it that opens up and that's what gives the support. Um, I think, you know, the other concern I'd have is women leaving it in long-term and risk for infection. Pessary can be, on the other hand, left in for months 
literally. Um, and because it's inert, less of an infection. Um, I agree with you. I think it's a little bit more uncomfortable to remove because of its substance. Um, but I think it's a good short-term option. Great. And then um, I've definitely been also encouraging patients to try like the menstrual cup or the diva cup. Um, I actually had one patient try it and she really liked it because of it being a more compliant structure. She actually found it to give a little bit of resistance to her pelvic floor when she combined it with her pelvic floor strengthening program during her home home use of that, which that was new to me. And I found that very interesting. And it, it made sense to me that yes, it's semi-rigid. Um, and for those listeners out there that don't know what a menstrual cup is, um, it's similar to a diaphragm where you insert it into the vagina and then it suctions up at the very apex of the vagina along the cervix and it prevents um, menstrual bleeding beyond that, beyond that barrier. Um, if we get a good seal, then it can also help with maybe a little bit of a uterine prolapse, but like Robin and I had talked about a little bit earlier, it's probably not going to help very much for any of those bladder prolapse patients because of how um, deep that menstrual cup is inserted into the vagina. But interesting point that it helps give a little resistance during those pelvic floor contractions, which I found was very interesting report from a patient. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, you touch base on the vagina is actually expandable lengthwise as well. It does expand and lengthen, you know, with sexual excitement. But um, my concern would be, as you were saying, with a menstrual cup, it's not going to give quite as much support to the bladder. Um, one of the things that I often will tell patients to do is to also try a tampon, for example, when they're running, because as it absorbs the um, vaginal secretions, it's going to expand and it will help hold up the bladder a little bit. One other point that I think is worth it to mention, a lot of women notice their prolapse worsening during menstruation. And so it's an interesting thing with the Diva Cup would that actually help the menstrual cup help hold up things a little bit more when you're actually menstruating? I have a current patient right now that complains of that, and I will encourage her to try that as a little uh, case trial here in the next week or so. I will let you know. Keep okay, sounds good. <laughs> so kind of talking about that, maybe um, I'll take a little aside right now to talk about physical therapy and what we do for individuals with a prolapse when conservative treatment is your option. You know, if you're planning to have more children, but you feel this bulge, obviously surgery is not quite indicated at this time. Um, also other comorbidities, surgery is not always indicated. So physical therapy can be an awesome conservative treatment option for individuals feeling that minor bulge, feeling that pressure, having incomplete emptying or, you know, problems with urine leakage, with coughing, laughing, you know, running, jumping, things like that. So when it comes to physical therapy, what I'll do is I'll do an internal pelvic floor exam to assess the level of the prolapse by giving a little posterior pressure and having that patient bulge down for me or strain like they're going to have a bowel movement. Most uh, research has shown that I need to be doing that three times in a row, having that individual hold for three seconds so I can get a really good assessment of what is descending down. Is it the bladder? Is it the uterus? Is it 
both. Um, and then nicely when I get referrals in from your gynecologist, generally on there, it's going to tell me what the grade is, which is super helpful. However, if I'm getting referrals coming in from family practice, a lot of individuals have no idea what's going on. And so I'm that first provider that's telling them, oh yeah, your, your bladder is starting to fall down into the vagina. Here's what we can do to help. If physical therapy doesn't help, then I refer out to one of my urogynecologist colleagues. So I, I'll do a strength exam, you know, how, how well can they perform that pelvic floor contraction or that Kegel? So I want to see, can they perform it quickly and relax back down? And then how long can they hold that contraction for their utmost strongest contraction? That's going to give me a good endurance idea. And then when it comes to treatment, what we start with is, you know, I'll provide vaginal tapping to the pelvic floor muscle with one digit inserted. Some individuals have better strength on their posterior vaginal wall. Some people have worse strength on their anterior, which is what I'll generally find with a cystocele or bladder prolapses. Those superior vaginal muscles are not contracting as well. So during my intervention, I will tap those superior pelvic floor muscles as a neuromuscular facilitation to get the brain to feel that muscle and engage that better. I don't tell the patients, you're not going to be able to volitionally contract that better, but I'm trying to talk to your brain right now so it understands what muscle I want it to contract. I also use biofeedback. I have both external sensors that go just on the perineal tissue. And then I also have a pressure biofeedback, which can be inserted vaginally to see how well is that squeeze pressure. So I will use that for patients to give them a good visual cue on how well their strength is, as well as their endurance. Um, if our goal is to get a mom back to running, then we start laying down with isolation. We have prolapse. We know when we're working against gravity, it's going to be more difficult for that patient. So we start laying down, transition to sitting, and then to standing. We want to get them doing functional activities. Can you hold that Kegel while you're stepping laterally, while you're stepping forward, while you're hopping? Um, as we know, running, we're pretty much hopping from one leg to the next. And so can they maintain that squeeze while they're hopping side to side? And that biofeedback visual cue, the patients love. And it's very interesting to see how well their endurance improves throughout the course. And another thing that I really coach patients on is, you know, our pelvic floor, we have a basement. That's what I call when we are bearing down. We have a floor one, that's where we normally are sitting. And then we have a floor 10 and that's your maximum pelvic floor contraction. So when it comes to strengthening, I like to teach them to reach 10. But I'm a realist and you can't be squeezing your pelvic floor at a level 10 the entire time you're running a half marathon. <laughs> So I teach patients with this biofeedback, where is your floor three or four? Where is that right number for you that you can maintain over a longer period of time, like running, where you can have some tone in your pelvic floor. So when your foot is hitting the pavement, that's going to want to make that bulge worse, that we can combat that pressure by living at your floor three or four. And so that, that visual feedback that they're getting with performing these activities is fantastic. And the women that I treat love it a ton. And then I'm always pushing home program with doing Kegels at home. We find that, you know, the bridge activity has the greatest correlation with improving pelvic floor strengthening. So I'll commonly give that exercise as well as deep hip rotators, such as the clam or the fire hydrant activity where you're either hook lying and you're trying to bring those knees apart with a resistance band or you're on all four, bring in one knee out to the side. 
fire hydrant. I think you can kind of envision what that kind of looks like. So those are general, you know, strength programs that I give for individuals with a, with a prolapse. So now that we've kind of heard a little bit about physical therapy interventions, I'm super curious to hear this, the actual surgical procedures that go on with repairing a cystocele in a uterine prolapse, because I have a lot of patients that come in here that are really, really curious about that procedure, about, about the precautions, about post-op healing time. So could you maybe give us a little synopsis on the different approaches to surgery and, and rehab after? Sure. One thing I do want to bring up from just going back to pessary, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> some women, when they've had multiple kids vaginally, their perineal body has just been destroyed through delivery. And those women, you obviously can help with improving the perineal strength, but they may not always be good candidates for pessary because they, it literally just can't stay in place. And so I think that's an important thing just in assessing is pessary a good thing or not. So from a surgical standpoint, some women don't want to deal with the pessary, the time for physical therapy, and they are ready for prolapse. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, more significant prolapse usually is going to respond well to surgery. There are, <clears throat> excuse me, um, several different things that when I look at approaching surgery, I think are important in the pelvic exam for the patient. And usually pelvic organ prolapse isn't an isolated area. So you're not going to have just a cystocele. You usually have defects in several compartments. And <clears throat> as you had alluded to, it can be, you know, a cystocele, uterine prolapse, rectocele, enterocele. And so if you're going to look at a surgery, you really want to manage all those pieces at once because if you neglect an area chances are they're going to have an increase in recurrence most of these surgeries are done vaginally um, if there is some degree of prolapse um, of the uterus and the bladder is the predominant thing i'm still going to look at doing a vaginal hysterectomy so that's removal of the cervix and the uterus and then depending on the patient's age um, tubes and ovaries um, most of these surgeries, again, are done vaginally. Um, basically, with a cystocele, I'm opening up the front wall of the vagina, and then I use stitches that are dissolvable, and I basically make a bridge of multiple stitches to hold up the bladder. I trim the extravaginal tissue off and close it in the midline again. So I'm basically recreating a vagina that's more like before they had children. How this works, the sutures and the surgery itself actually make scar tissue and that's what helps support it. From a standpoint of hysterectomy, if you have uterine prolapse, again, I would do a vaginal hysterectomy. And that's where I was alluding to earlier the importance of looking at the strength of the ligaments that used to hold up the uterus. Do we need to do added um, surgery to help support that top part of the vagina because if it isn't adequately supported, then the woman is going to have a risk for prolapse. There are a couple different types of approaches we can do to help support that top of the vagina. 
Um, <clears throat> one is called a sacrospinous ligament uh, suspension or fixation, where I actually go to the sacrospinous ligament, which is off deep in the pelvis, and I attach a couple sutures to that and sew that to the top of the vagina. When I'm finished, I tie up the stitches, which resuspend the vagina then over to that area. There are also um, surgical procedures where we go up further into that ligament through the vagina, excuse me, the uterosacral ligaments, and we resuspend the vagina up higher. Um, the third thing that's done, and this is usually utilized if someone has had recurrent prolapse, there are laparoscopic and robotic approaches where we actually use mesh, which is a, a polypropylene mesh, it's permanent, and we attach it to the top of the vagina. So this is in the abdomen. Attach it to the top of the vagina and then sew it into the sacrum. But that is not usually done for a first-time event with prolapse. That's if someone is having recurrence, and that does happen. So there are multiple approaches. We usually start with the simplest. Um, and again, we have to address the other areas. So, you know, rectocele oftentimes is an important thing to address. Um, there's been some actually really good data coming out that the opening or the introitus, if it is really lax or gaping, these women do need a repair of that area that seems to help in supporting the other organs and lessening the risk of failure. So there's a lot of research looking at that portion of the repair as well. Thank you for that. Um, curious, for those out there that are maybe a pelvic floor therapist, we know that the pudendal nerve travels just posterior to that sacrospinous ligament. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming you guys are being extra careful, but how often do you see like an entrapment occur postoperatively with like pudendal neuralgia because of maybe where you're suturing along that sacrospinous ligament? So there is a very specific way that you perform the surgery and you know feeling anatomically and visualizing you don't want to go too far lateral over to the ischial spine because you will hit the pudendal nerve um, and obviously vessels within there as well um, personally i haven't had a problem with it i will tell patients they will sometimes feel some buttocks pain um, after the surgery because there are little tiny nerve fibers that there is just no way to avoid but it really is and i think this is important for patients to understand finding a surgeon that does a lot of these repairs because we've been in that space we know what's happening um and i think you have less of a chance of having some of those complications those are really quite rare though yeah I've only seen a few patients post-operatively that have had some complications. One was a issue with the mesh that became embedded, so then they had to remove it. And another patient, I think, was just maybe increased scar development post-hysterectomy that came into my office for pelvic pain after the fact, which is an obvious risk with scar mm -hmm. tissue. So I always tell patients, if you're having that postoperatively at your six-week checkup, the sooner that we can get working on that scar tissue to get it loosened up, the faster your rehabilitation will be mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that, you know, brings up a good point um, from a standpoint of scar tissue. There are, there was a window where um, mesh was being utilized both for a cystocele and a rectocele. Um, and 
it is still utilized predominantly for the bladder if there are recurrent defects that should not, in my opinion, be a first-line approach, but recurrent defects can. And that is where I think you do get into some of the more problematic complications because they're permanent. Um, I tend to use for a sacrospinous fixation non-permanent suture. I think the permanent suture increases the risk for exactly what you were talking about, Madison. So, you know, in the end, the suture dissolves at about six weeks. And so it's predominantly scar tissue that will be there, not a permanent stitch that's going to aggravate and cause discomfort. So I really have migrated more towards just using the dissolvable. I really hope that that resonates with listeners from this because I believe those commercials about the class action suit with the mesh has really scared a lot of women away from getting these procedures done now. And I think it's very informative for them to hear now that that is not the first line, that is not the best care option, and there are still very successful low-risk surgical options for women out there that this is the most appropriate intervention for them to receive the best outcomes. And so I really, really hope for listeners out there that have a significant pelvic floor prolapse where it's literally your insides are falling out, that surgery is still a very good option for you and that, you know, there are very strong successes with very minimal risks. I think, you know, patients often will ask too, well, what can I anticipate with this? It's usually an overnight stay in the hospital. <clears throat> it's not a particularly painful surgery. It always surprises me how well women do after this surgery. Um, I have lots of people, if they're doing a desk job that may go home or, or may go back to work at uh, two weeks out. Um, again, this is almost always done exclusively through the vagina. Um, and my main request for patients postoperatively is limiting their lifting. So I usually limit it to 20 pounds. I do alter their exercise regime. And that's usually for about a six-week window. Because again, this surgery for prolapse works well by creating scar tissue to hold things up. And so you don't want to be overdoing it and breaking down the scar tissue. One other thing, Madison, that I think is important because we were talking about mesh, um, from a standpoint of incontinence, and I'm talking about stress urinary incontinence, so uh, a leak with a laugh or a cough or sneeze or running, um, a mid-urethral sling really is the gold standard for treating this. And that is mesh, and it's permanent. There's wonderful data out there. It is not the type of mesh that women are seeing the class action suits on. And a lot of people are very, you know, no, 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 I don't want to have any mesh in me because of those suits. This is a different thing and it really does support well, works very well, has years of data, and it is an appropriate first line approach. So that's the one, you know, instance where I think mesh actually is really helpful. Thank you for that. Because I do, it's, it's, it's unfortunate to see all these ladies that have problems that would have had fantastic outcomes that are so, so fearful that come into my office. And so I hope that the listeners out there have gained a new understanding of the surgical outcomes and gold standards and will ask more questions to their primary, to their um, different care providers about the options that are available to them. And the sling, if it's done 
just by itself is really a minimally invasive surgery. It's a one little tiny incision um, just under the urethra in the vagina, and then the sling is just placed off on either side around the urethra. A couple stitches, you're done. It's really a very minimally invasive procedure. That's great. So for our listeners from, you know, we've been talking about physical therapy interventions. We've been talking about surgical interventions. We've been talking about different types of pessaries from the silicone bit from a gynecologic standpoint, all the way to the poor man's pessary of the poise as low as even just a tampon. What would you say to the listeners is the greatest take home message from the discussion that we've had today? If you think that things are bulging, leaking, uncomfortable, difficulty voiding, talk to your provider about it. I'm always amazed at how many women have gone literally years with this issue and have just been embarrassed to talk about it um, or, you know, assuming that there's nothing that can be done. And there is so much that can be done to make you live a really full, happy, physically active life. So it's worth it to bring it up. If you are seeing family doctor only, they can refer. We urogynecologists do this all the time. So talk to us about it. Come in and see us. With that being said, what is the best way for listeners to reach out to you for more information or questions? I would say, so I work at uh, Granger Medical Murray Women's Health, and I think the easiest way is really to come in for a visit. Um, we have been actually doing some podcasts through Granger, and there is one coming up um, about pelvic organ prolapse where I talk about some of those things. So I think listening to podcasts like this uh, or, um, you know, Granger's podcasts, um, doing some research online helps you get an idea of some of the things going on so that you can come in and ask questions. But I think coming in is the best thing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mainwaring, for coming on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for talking with me, Madison. So thank you for listening. If you or anyone you know suffers from pelvic prolapse, please share this podcast. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. Tune in next month for our topic on the woes of pregnancy with Dr. Susan Horvath. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.